This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number 18. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings, and welcome to The Author Biz, the Monday podcast focused on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. I'm recording this in Naples, Florida, on what is, for us, the first cold day of the year. The temperature is 50 degrees outside, which is about 20 degrees cooler than it was yesterday, which means today is sweater migration day, when the cold weather gear is finally moved from the guest room into the bedroom closet. Other parts of the country have leaves turning or snow falling to signify the change of seasons. We have Sweater Migration Day. We've got a great show today, so I'm really glad you're here. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by everything that goes into running your author business? Are you dealing with readers, fans, publishers, branding, editors, email lists, websites, social media, and conferences? Do you have a core principle or strategy that helps you set your priorities and focus on what's most important in your business? And that's really kind of my core philosophy, is everything that you were talking about became so much easier once I figured out what my business strategy was. And here it is. It's very simple. It's what will make my readers jump for joy and delight. That was C.J. Lyons, an award-winning New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of 26 novels across multiple genres. She's what's known as a hybrid author. She self-publishes some of her books, while others, including her most recent book, Watched, which is a young adult thriller, are published traditionally. C.J. left a career as a pediatric ER doctor to write full-time in 2004, and over the past decade, she's developed her own clearly defined brand as well as some principles and strategies that help to simplify the constant swirl that goes on in a successful author's life. In this interview, we'll be talking about some of those strategies, tools, and the resources that have helped to keep her on track while writing multiple series for different publishers. I am super excited to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast. I've been an Audible.com listener for over a decade now, and I've got nearly 200 audiobooks in my Audible library. Audiobooks are a great way to enjoy the books you love, and Audible has over 150,000 titles, including C.J. Lyon's latest book, Watched, available for immediate download, and those books can be played on iPhones, iPads, Android phones and tablets, and many Kindle devices. For listeners of the AuthorBiz podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a no-obligation 30-day trial of their service to give you the opportunity to check them out. You can sign up for your trial at www.audibletrial.com authorbiz and download your free audiobook. I'll also have a link to this offer in the show notes at the AuthorBiz website. Now let's get on with today's interview. My guest today is author C.J. Lyons, the multi-award winning New York Times and USA Today author of 26 novels, which includes standalone thrillers, several different series, and some young adult titles. 
By my count, and I could be missing some books, in the past three months alone, she's released the fifth book in the Lucy Gardino FBI thriller series, the first book in the Renegade Justice thriller series, and on November 4th, she's releasing Watched, a young adult thriller. And way, way back, all the way back in May, she released Farewell to Dreams, which is one of my favorite books of this year. CJ, welcome to the Author Biz. Hi, thanks for having me. You put out a lot of books. Um, well, this year's it, it will be six books by the end of the year, three from my New York City publishers, and then three self-published. So I did not write all six books this year, though. That's one thing people need to understand when you're dealing with traditional publishers. Uh, your books are written, you know, usually a year, sometimes two years before they ever hit the bookshelf. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're not putting out one book a month because it sure looked that way from uh, Amazon when I went back over the last three. I just finished reading Watched, which is your new young adult thriller. I loved it, and I, I will say it's the first young adult book I've ever read, and I had no idea that young adult books were this gritty. This was a fabulous book. Tell us about it. Well, I have to admit, Watched is, I mean, it's, what, book number 26 for me, and it's honestly, I think, my best book. It's definitely my favorite book right now. Um, that's because as a pediatrician, I just felt so strongly that these kids that are being victimized by these cyber predators called cappers, they, they deserve to have their story told, but not in a gratuitous, over-the-top, adult type of thriller, you know, all car chases and, and torture porn and things like that type of way, but rather in a very emotionally honest way that reveals what these kind of victims go through on an emotional and psychological level. And so I really, um, there is no on-page description of any of the abuse these kids have, have suffered. I mean, I refuse to do that. There's actually not even really any on-page violence at all in the book. But I think it does capture that darkness that kids that are violated and coerced and manipulated by these predators fall into. And uh, so I, I really am glad that you enjoyed it. Um, it's hard to even pitch it as entertainment, except that for kids... This is the kind of book that, you know, truly might have an impact on a lot of lives and hopefully empower and inspire uh, them to stand up um, when they're faced with this kind of manipulation online or even in person. You started writing YA fairly recently, right? Sorry? Did, did you just start writing YA, like maybe this is your third or fourth YA novel? Actually, it's my, only my second. Oh, my okay. first All YA right. novel was Broken that came out last year from Sourcebooks. Mm -hmm. um, it won... I don't even remember all the awards it won. It won a lot of awards. Uh, it was it had a lot of critical um, acclaim attached to it, and it's really um, it's really a fun book because it's a medical thriller, but it's for kids, and it's about first person point of view. It's about a girl that knows everything about dying because she's literally dying of a broken heart, uh, and nothing about living a normal life um, as a high school student. So it's her chance to go to high school for the first time ever and what happens to her life because of that. Now, people that follow your work but maybe don't know your story, um, you, you came up through medicine, you were a pediatric physician, uh, you gave it all up to start writing, you, as I remember, uh, there was this big publishing deal, and then something happened. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's always the best stories are the something that happened, right? Yes, actually, I was a pediatric emergency doctor for 17 years, but I've been a writer all my life. Um, I wrote my first novel in high school and then two science fiction novels in medical school, none of which will see the light of day, thank goodness. <laughs> and I then switched to writing uh, thrillers. And I had two um, contracts from a major New York City publisher, and everything looked like it was going to be wonderful. Dream debut, it was going to be hardcover. Uh, we had good pre-sale orders. Twelve New York Times best-selling authors gave us cover quotes. I mean, it was just wonderful. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and then something happened. About 90 days before the book was due to be released, um... That is when the booksellers got their very first look at the cover art. And they said, this cover art will not work. If you don't change it, we're going to pull out our pre-orders. And the publisher refused to change it. They said, we have an award-winning art department. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're not changing it. We're standing by our cover. And I have to tell you, this was honestly the most ugly cover I have ever (laughs) in my life encountered. It was shades of bio green on bio green so that you actually got nauseous as you were trying to read the cover quotes. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't know what the deal was, but the publisher just pulled the book. So suddenly I had already quit my day job as a pediatrician. Um, So here I was unemployed for the first time since I was 15. And I did what I always do. Writing is my way of dealing with the chaos in the world around me. So I kept writing. And here's the kind of the good part of the story. It just kind of goes to show you that karma has a sense of humor. The book that I wrote while I was working to get my rights back and finding a new publisher for different projects and things like that was Blind Face. And that book eventually debuted at number two in the New York Times list. It won several awards, including the prestigious International Thriller Writers Thriller Award, an RT Reviewer's Choice Award, and it sold in two months a quarter of a million copies. Good grief. So it was kind of like, na 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 And I've, of course, since self-published those books that were originally under contract with that um, first New York City publisher. Uh, They're the first two books in my Hart and Drake series, Nerves of Steel and Sleight of Hand. And those books have just been so popular with readers. Uh, In fact, um, for the holidays, I'm going to be releasing the fourth book in that series, the finale, because so many readers fell in love with Hart and Drake that they demanded a wedding story. So they're having a Christmas wedding where, of course, everything that can go wrong goes wrong. But uh, it just goes to show you that readers really are what make a book a success, not how it's published. Now, when you decided to leave medicine and to become a writer full-time or to pursue the idea of becoming a writer full-time, what were your initial goals? Uh, paying the rent. <laughs> <laughs> that's always that's always a good one, especially uh, for no, a writer. Actually, I I I struggled with leaving medicine for quite some time. Um, you know, as we know, when you're in traditional publishing, the time it takes between actually selling a book to a publisher and having the book published is years. And in my case, I, I had that original contract in 2004. I had the contract for the sequel in 2005, but the first book wasn't slated to come out to 2006. So that gave me two 
two years to prepare myself. Um, I saved money. I made certain I had health insurance. Um, I actually, I moved. Uh, I downsized and I moved a thousand miles away from home because I figured, hey, as a writer, I'm probably never going to get another mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> place where I want to live the rest of my life. Uh, and, you know, of course, I, I, I talked to a lot of my friends that were already published and, and tried to make certain that this wasn't an absolutely crazy idea. Now, just to tell you, you know, show you how traditional publishing works, I have to tell you that all of those friends who were multi-published, best-selling, award-winning authors told me not to leave my day job. Wow. <laughs> Uh, in fact, most of them had not left their day job. Only one of them had uh, was writing full-time and, and able to support herself and her family with it. But I'm kind of stubborn, and I figure a, a girl from a small town in central Pennsylvania who put herself through medical school, and that was you know just a total dream come true. Publishing and being a writer was a second dream come true, and how could I ignore that? So I took the leap of faith. And how quickly did you decide to go from or, or getting off the traditional publishing is the only way path? Because back in 2004, 2006, it really was the only way. Yes. Yes, it was. Um, after that initial disaster, Berkeley Putnam came to me the end of 2006 and asked me to create the Angels of Mercy medical suspense series for them. But the first book in that series did not come out to 2008. And in the meantime, I had the two manuscripts from that original New York City publisher that had been totally edited, page-proofed, copy-edited, the whole nine yards, and two other manuscripts that we had gone through all sorts of editorial uh, development, and one of them even through copy edits while we were doing contract negotiations with other houses. And those two manuscripts got orphaned. So I ended up with the rights to all of these, professionally edited, ready-for-New-York-City manuscripts and nowhere to, to get them out to my readers. And in the meantime, Berkeley was releasing my books one a year, which is really hard to build a series if you're only doing one book a year. And readers so fell in love with the Angel series that they wanted more from me. So I kept getting all these emails. Please, you know, we, we want other books. We want more books. Could you, you know, get more books out there? So... The um, beginning of 2010, uh, you could now self-publish on Amazon through their uh, Kindle platform. So I went ahead and I started putting up these books, not so much to make money, because at the time it was only 35% royalty and, you know, is a, a very small market, but I wanted to at least be able to have a place that I could direct readers to and say, actually, I do have other books. You can go here and find them. So it was more about pleasing my readers and keeping them happy and it, more a marketing tool than an actual, you know, making money type tool. Mm-hmm. And so that first um, January was when the Haiti earthquake hit. And so I told my readers, I just sent out a newsletter, and I said, hey, I'm going to donate the entire month of February's profits from my ebook sales um, to Doctors Without Borders for the earthquake relief. And we ended up selling in that month almost 2,000 books, which at the time was huge. So that kind of clued me in to start taking this seriously. So I kept... Uh, 
any material I had that, you know, was was done and was ready to go up, I would get it, edit it. Uh, I started out by doing my own cover art, which I was so glad when I was able to afford a real artist because <laughs> I have no visual skills at all. Um, and my goal was to, to really, you know, give my readers something back. But by the end of that year, I was paying the bills with the self-publishing stuff. And then um, by 18 months after I started, I was making more in a month self-publishing than I was making all year from New York City. And I was getting pretty good contracts in New York City, so that's mm-hmm. saying a lot. So I was like, wow, this is, you know, this is really something to take seriously. Now, you mentioned you, you, a couple times you've mentioned your email list. When did you actually start your email list? When did you start collecting subscribers to the list? I actually started my email list, and this was probably the smartest thing I've ever done in my life, back in 2004, when I had that very first book contract. I thought, you know what? I need a way to reach out to readers. Um, I've never been someone that was into social media uh, back then. I think it was MySpace was a big deal. And, you know, of course, nowadays we have Facebook and Twitter and things. But, um, you know, I just knew that, that I needed something that was simpler and also... Being an ER doctor, I'm a control freak. I wanted to be able to have control over the communication with my readers. So I started building that email list and have just kept growing it. And, in fact, I have periodically, every two or three years, I'll actually prune it uh, several times. I have literally cut 30 to 40% of the addresses from it because they're just no longer, you know, people that want to hear from me or the addresses aren't valid anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of that dead weight. And so... So um, for the last, I guess, about three or four years, it's been holding steady at about 10,000 subscribers, which it seems like a good, you know, a nice place. We're not getting too many bounces. I have, depending on the email, uh, 40 to 50% um, open rate and a click-through rate that's usually about 30 to 35%. So pretty good stats come from it. And most of all, that kind of reflects that my readers want to hear from me. So I think that's really important. It's not me just broadcasting out into the void. It's my readers actually saying, hey, there's a note from CJ. I want to open that. And I'm a subscriber to your list. And I I actually use your list. I've sent it to, to other friends who are authors to say, do it like CJ's doing it, because you do a great job with your list. You, you're, you communicate on a fairly regular basis, and it's not always, here's a new book. There, there are other things in there. You've been in other projects with authors and things that you've done. Uh, this summer, there was something you were doing that was a big book giveaway thing for, for a couple of days, and there was a lot of that in there, just a lot of interesting information. So, yes, I always look forward to seeing those emails from CJ. Thank you. See, that's exactly what I'm going for. Is I always try to put the reader first and, you know, what will make my readers happy. And, yes, they do want to hear about my releases. So yes. when I do have a new release, the emails will focus on me, which I'm actually rather uncomfortable about. Um, this fall, it's been like that because just a coincidence of my New York City publishing schedule and my self-publishing schedule, I've had a release in September, October, and then two in November. So, you know, I, I hate it always being about me. But as you may have noticed over the summer, we did Digital Book Day, which Mm -hmm. is a huge giveaway for readers. Um, 
my readers inform me as far as the charity that foundation that we've established, the buy a book, make a difference. So a lot of times I'll talk about that. Uh, quite often I'll invite other thriller writers to come on board and talk about their projects and introduce them to my readers because I can't write fast enough to keep my readers happy. So if I can find other good books for them, I'm going to share that. It helps everybody. It certainly helps your readers, and it, it helps those other authors who are producing good work. Exactly, exactly. It becomes a win-win for everyone, and I love it when I can do that. And that's why I tie a lot of my charity events into book releases as well, it's because that way I don't feel uncomfortable that it's all about me. It's about charity. So even like Watched, the uh, launch for it um, is going to be in San Diego on the USS Midway at a huge benefit at the Veterans Book Fair. Um, And that's going to be for Veterans Day next week. Oh, neat. Perfect timing. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned... One of the things that you like so much about your email list is that it gives you control. And and that's something that I I think people don't pay enough attention to. The idea that this list is yours. It's it's an asset of your business. And it's unlike Facebook where things change or Twitter, things could change. Or, you know, we, we did go all the way back to MySpace. If you had put all kinds of time into MySpace, it would have just been gone. And uh, yeah, this exactly. is something that and, and you own. Yes. Um, that's the frustration I have with Facebook right now is I have, I don't know, like 9,300 fans on Facebook. And it is a fan page. So these people have decided that they want to hear from me. And yet usually, you know, only 1,000 to 2,000 of them, you know, will be served, I think it's the Facebook term, like mm-hmm. they're a concierge, <laughs> be served any given post, um, sometimes even less. So I hate that throttling. It's like, wait a minute, these people want to hear from me, but some computer algorithm somewhere is trying to decide who actually gets to see the information. And I don't want to bombard my mailing list by sending out, you know, all sorts of little daily, you know, updates like new reviews or quotes or, you know, fun little videos I find. That kind of chatting I find Facebook is very good for. But when it comes to major news, I want to be able to be certain that my news is getting into the hands of my readers because they want it. I mean, they wouldn't have signed up for it if they didn't want it. They're asking for it. It's all permission-based. I never add anyone without their permission, which is very important if anyone is thinking of starting a newsletter. Please read very carefully about how to do it. Do not spam people. Be polite. You are going into their homes and into their space and asking them for their time and attention. And that's valuable. So you want to treat it that way. And you you started your newsletter back in 2004. Uh, I've been in the technology business for a long time and have followed Seth Godin for a long time. And he wrote a book called Permission Marketing way back when, maybe around 2004. I'm not sure when it was actually published. Was that an influence at all in, in you setting up this email list? Um, it didn't 
didn't influence me at the time, but I love Seth Godin. He's one of, when I had my disastrous uh, first experience with New York City Publishing, mm-hmm. one of the things I did after that was I said, I have to learn business. I am not a business person. I do not even balance my checkbook. So this is a whole new world to me. But Seth Godin, thankfully, was one of the first blogs I stumbled across. And he gives away almost all of his books for free. So you can go and download them and read free PDFs of his books. I think the first one of his I read was the um, Bootstrappers. And then um, the one about tribes. Tribes was great. But, yeah, the permission-based marketing one is absolutely essential for anyone that's going to be running a a newsletter, though. Um, Copy Blogger also has some really great stuff about newsletters and and how to use them and how to own your digital property, which is basically your newsletter and your website. Uh, Because another mistake I see authors make is they get these free blogs thinking that that is a substitute for a website. Well, it's not, because you really don't have the control over your brand that way. You have to fit into one of their templates, and you can't really customize it a lot. And what if, you know, they go away? Like, TypePad was going to shut down. It's like, well, you know, well, what would you do if you had your blog on TypePad? You would have had to, to switch it. I mean, that would just be a nightmare. Yeah, there are all these, there are these assets that you can use that are free. I mean, you you can get a free WordPress site. You can use Wix, and you can do these other things. You can also use FeedBurner for your email list. But you give up so much control for these assets that you're building and that are growing in value with each passing month that it really is short-sighted not to spend what is really no more than a couple hundred dollars a year, especially when you're beginning, to get all these things set up and oh, and yeah, to maintain them. Oh, yeah, that. My... Um website is hosted by Bluehost, who mm-hmm. I heartily recommend. I love those guys. And I think their plans start at like five ninety five a month. Uh, MailChimp will give you your first two thousand subscribers for free if you use them for their for their mailing list, which is who I now use. I've mm-hmm. I've gone through several mailing list um services and uh last let me see, I guess three or four years I've been using MailChimp and I've been very happy with them. Uh just shop around. I mean you really don't have to pay a huge amount of money, but looking professional is so important because the readers remember you. They're interested in you. They're not interested in whatever publisher you might be working for, whether it's yourself or New York City or small press. And that's always my goal. Is any encounter with my reader, I want it to be the same whether we're talking about a New York City book or a self-published book. I want them not to know the difference. And that's so important because there are so many there's so many authors, especially people that are just traditionally published, where the there is no relationship between the reader and the author, other than you know maybe Facebook or something. But there's no relationship that's formed. There's no email communication. There's no it, the publishers aren't collecting any of this information. It's if they buy if if I buy a book through Amazon, Amazon knows it, but they're not sharing it with the author and they're not sharing it with the publisher. So there is no relationship that's formed. But what you've done with your website and including all this information in the back of your books and things like that, it, it helps to cement this relationship. And you have you have a very well-defined brand for yourself. Well, 
I worked very hard at that um, because even back in 2004 when I was pitching those first books, it was very clear to me that my books are so cross-genre that they were very difficult to pigeonhole. And unfortunately for mainstream publishing, if you don't fit in a pigeonhole, then you know they just don't bother with you because it's too much work. And work means expensive. So, you know, they, they kind of shy away from anything that's outside the norm. So I just developed my own um, subgenre, thrillers with heart. Uh-huh. Character-driven thrillers uh, with very um, strong emotional honesty at, at the core. Uh, so it's not all about the plot or the explosions or car chases, although I have plenty of those in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but it's really about the character's emotional journey. And the nice thing about that is since I decided that very early in my career, I've been able to be very consistent consistent with it. Uh, I can use it in my my branding. Um, when I speak, I talk about thrillers with heart or I talk about the emotional heart of a story. And just about any genre will fit under that umbrella for me. Um, I've done some books that have supernatural elements. I've done some books that are more uh, properly characterized as romantic suspense or romantic thrillers. Those young adult thrillers fit under that. Um, I'm even now experimenting with some science fiction um, story ideas, but they're still thrillers, So, and they're thrillers with heart, so they'll fit under that brand. Uh, so once I figured that out, everything else fell into place quite nicely. Now you've you've said I I think twice so far that you're not a you're not a business person and you don't pay attention to these things but clearly you do sort of pay attention to these things you know the the branding every email I've ever received from you has has a big thrillers thrillers with heart down at the bottom so you do do all this stuff there had to have been a time when early on several years ago when your first books that you self-published, you said, were, pub- or were edited professionally through New York City publishers, so you didn't really have to have much of a team then, but eventually you started writing things to be self-published, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a position of needing to find an editor, needing to find people to help you with different aspects of the publishing business. How, how did you do that, and, and did you wait until you just reach the, the breaking point yourself before you got help, or, or were you more strategic? Did you think about it and, and look down the pipe uh, a year or so and say, I'm going to need help with this, so I better start thinking about it now? Yeah, I, you know, I wish I could say it was strategic, and I'll tell everyone out there, you really should have a plan. Try, <laughs> try to be strategic. Um, when I say I don't pay attention to things like the business, I mean the, the small de- details. Like, I, for instance, I like to open an Excel spreadsheet. I just am not a spreadsheet person. But... I'm a lifelong learner, and I love learning about new things, whether it's how an FBI agent would take down a a suspect or how, you know, the guys at Copyblogger send out their their emails. So um, I really try to dive into any subject matter and absorb as much as I can. Uh, And a couple of the books that really helped me early on that I would heartily recommend are Primal Branding, uh, which I think the author's last name is Hanlon. Um, but it's great because it's one of the first books that came out using telling a story as an essential component of marketing, sales, and building a brand. And, of course, its target audience was all those salespeople out there that were trying to 
you know, focus on features and benefits instead of telling the customers a story. Right. Well, we're storytellers. So, hey, that should make life easy for us. So it's a great walk through how to use stories to build your brand. And in the second book, uh, he's also a brilliant speaker. So if you even don't read the book but just go to his website and, and, and look at his TED Talks, is Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K, uh, Start With Why. And that's really kind of my core philosophy is everything that you were talking about became so much easier once I figured out what my business strategy was. And here it is. It's very simple. It's what will make my readers jump for joy and delight. So for my readers, they want more books from me. So I spend my time writing rather than going to a lot of conferences. Uh, If I'm going to give something away, they would rather have a free book than something like, you know, a tchotchke, you know, um, I don't know, a a mouse pad or whatever. Uh, So I don't spend my money on things like T-shirts and stuff like that. If I'm going to give something away, you know, I give them away something of value, which is usually a full, complete novel. So that is part of helping to, to disseminate my brand, but also to help keep my readers happy. And the parts that I've actually had to get help with, um, New York City was a huge help because they had a bunch of layoffs. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I can still work with a lot of the editors that I have met through my New York City publishing because they're now freelancing. So I hire them just like New York City still hires them. And, and I work with developmental editors, professional copy editors, and professional proofreaders. And I think that, if you're starting out, definitely budget for that. Do not publish until you're certain it's professionally edited because your competition is not the other self-publishers. It's the people on the New York Times bestseller list. That is such a great point. And, and the developmental edit it can be so valuable, and it's something that I think a lot of people overlook. Uh, they they just think that the the copy edit or or proofreading is sufficient, looking for typos and things like that. But the developmental edit can can just be absolutely critical in in turning out a readable book. Well, especially if you haven't written many books. Now you have to remember, before self publishing became possible and accessible, most writers who received their first contract usually had already written four to five complete novels before they got signed by a New York City publisher. Well, you know, five novels, that's half a million words. Right. So you've learned the trade. You've learned what works and what doesn't. And then, of course, with your first novel of New York City, your editor totally kicks your butt to the curb and redlines, you know, every page. And then you learn, like, okay, this is how I take my craft to the next level. And that's why I still, to this day, work with developmental editors because I want every book to be something new and exciting and a little bit different and to push me a little bit further. And I think um, what you were saying about the books that you've read recently of mine, if you look even in the Lucy Gardino series, which now has its fifth book just came out, Mm -hmm. The last two books in that series are structured in a very unconventional way where you have time shifts 
and you have different timelines impacting the narrative. And in Heartfall, you actually have um, snippets of an autobiography that technically would have been published after the events of the story, but they actually inform the reader as to the backstory of what created this crisis that's happening in Lucy's world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like that, uh, learning how to, to um, increase tension uh, without losing the character's emotions, things like that are just vital, and developmental editors are really important in that. And I think a lot of times people go wrong because they've just written a book. And that is really, really a big deal. And that's why so many writers call it, you know, their baby. Right. Well, the problem with working with a developmental editor is that they're assuming that you want to reach readers and sell more books and make it the best book possible. So that means baby's going to get some plastic surgery. (laughs) And not every parent is willing to do that. (laughs) Now, you have a lot of different series going right now. Do you use the same editors across those different series, or do you keep a group of editors or an editor with a series? Uh, A lot of it depends on the editor's availability. Mm -hmm. I tend to use the same copy editors um, to keep, because they understand my style. So, uh, and I have um, three copy editors I work with, and it just depends which one is available, but they're all, you know, equally qualified and wonderful. So, um, whichever one's available, I'll, you know, I don't really care which series it is. Um, for developmental editors, I tend to go within the series so that they understand the characters and the backstory and my intentions of where that character arc might be headed next. Mm-hmm. So I find that's most helpful uh, to keep the same developmental editor within a series, because then you don't have to start from scratch. Although I have to admit, occasionally I have shaken things up and switched just to get a new perspective on things. Um, but I don't do that very often because it's very time-consuming. And, you know, like I said, my readers do want my books out as fast as humanly possible. So it's, it's a balancing act like anything um, in business is. You have to weigh the pros and the cons. Well, let's, let's go back now to the email list again and talk about your street team. I've, I've heard you talking about your street team before and how you're able to leverage your email list and those people that are your biggest fans to help you launch your books very strategically and almost always very successfully. So well, my street team, that's, that's really that's who they are, my biggest fans. So I had actually initially started uh, when the street team and I first formed it, which I think was back in like 2010, maybe 2011. Um, it was about, it grew very quickly to about 300, 350 people. And last year, I just realized that that was just too many to manage. Um, first of all, not everything I wrote was going to, you know, excite and delight every single member of the street team. And also, um, some people, you know, because of time constraints and things, were backing out. So instead of keeping the original 350 people, I actually narrowed that down to about 75 core members. 
And within those core, that core group, um, they're, you know, they really are the readers that pretty much love anything I write. Although they also are very, very honest, which I appreciate. They're not just going to blindly go out there and spread word about a book. Um, they'll give me a three-star review. And, and I'm totally cool with that. As long as it's an honest review, mm-hmm. I am totally cool with that. Because, you know, writers, y- you can't satisfy every single person in the world with every single story you tell. I mean, that's just impossible. And you'll drive yourself crazy if you make that your goal. But if, you know, I can consistently keep my readers happy, and my street team is a nice little microcosm reflection of that, um, then then I'm doing the right thing. And so when I do get those three-star reviews from a street team member, I read those and take them very seriously. And I look at, like, well, why didn't this work for them? And quite often it's something that is just a personal issue, and I don't have any control over that. But occasionally it can be something stylistic, and I'll make a note say, okay, let's try not to go there next time. Let's try to do something different and see if that appeals to more people. So the street team is very valuable to me. Um, I actually don't make them work very hard. Uh, I know some romance writers that, and some young adult writers that their street team, they're seriously out there on the streets, I mean, pounding the pavement, handing out bookmarks, and stuff like that. Uh, my guys, um, first of all, they tend to be older, and um, they, they don't use technology as much, so a lot of them don't even know how to, like, share a Facebook post or and aren't on Twitter or anything like that, um, much less, like, Tumblr or creating, you know, iPhone videos or anything. So it tends to be a lot more low-key. Basically, the main thing I ask them to do is um, if they're interested in a new book and they have time to read it, uh, I do ask them to go ahead, and I'll give them a free early copy if they would post a review early on. And then um, when a book comes out, you know, I'll give them some sample Facebook posts. And, and if they like the book, if they would share that and recommend it to friends. So it's very low-key. And then, of course, occasionally I'll, I'll give them, I'll just pop on there. We have a little Facebook group, and I'll pop on there and say, hey, I want to give you guys something for free, and I'll just, you know, um get, you know, talk to them and chat them up and, you know, send them all a little, you know, Christmas present or whatever. One one of the things that I'm gathering from, from our discussion today, and I'm writing them down as we go, is that you have clearly defined objectives with what you do. Um, you, you've got your, your branding, Thrillers with Heart. You know exactly what your business strategy is. You want to delight your readers and give them what they want, which is more books. And with your street team, the primary objective is to get reviews and get them out there quickly because that helps the momentum of, of a book launch. Uh, is, right. is, is this something that has all been done through careful thought or is it trial and effort? Has, has this all just evolved or is this just the way your mind works? You pick out the most important thing and, you know, the 80-20 rule, you're, you're doing all of the 20% that generates 80% of the benefit and that seems to just go across with everything that you do. Well, you make it sound really good. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, it's, it's a combination. Um, a lot of it early on was experimentation. You know, like I said, you know, I, at one point I had 350 people on my street team, and I, and I had no idea what to do with them. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, what do I want to do with them? Um, I ask myself questions all the time. And I think that is very important um, to, to be upfront. I mean, if you're just thinking, you know, oh, I just want to have a career like, you know, so-and-so's, you 
aren't really thinking about what serves your readers. You're thinking about what serves his or her readers. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really important. And, and again, I would highly recommend Simon Sinek, Start With Why, because what he does is he forces you to drill down every aspect. And it's so funny because um, I've been teaching writing classes since 2003, and I start every writing class with why are you a writer? Why are you writing this book? Why are you writing, you know, in this genre? Why are you shutting yourself in a room and ignoring your family and friends <laughs> to write? Um, you know, I, I really get people to drill down on their whys because that helps them decide what career path is right for them. Some people, the reason why they're writing, it's more of a kind of self-analysis, you know, more memoir type of, um, you know, getting their thoughts out there. And they really only have one book. And they may not even want to share that book with very many people. So they may not want to self-publish. They might want to just do a, a very limited, you know, publication um, for family. Other people, they know this is their career, and they already have, like, a huge world laid out and and 20 different stories that could take place in that world and how they all interact. And, you know, those guys are primed for a totally different type of publication than, you know, someone uh, who maybe is writing in a very topical, narrow genre that may do better going with, like, a small press that specializes in that genre. So there's so many career paths. And you don't know which one to take unless you understand where you're going and why you want to get there. So I've done that same thing, you know, with the email list and with my street team and with my website and deciding which project to tackle next. And, you know, I just I, I need to keep it simple. Writing a story, writing a book and, and doing it justice is, is so complicated. I need everything else to be simple. <laughs> That's a great policy. <laughs> Now, you mentioned that you teach writing, and you write a lot about the craft of writing and the business of writing, and you do that at a site called NoRulesJustWrite.com. Yes, that's that's mainly focused on resources for publishing. Um, I have pretty much retired from teaching writing. I love, love, love it, but it's so time-consuming. So what I did was I put all of my tips for writing character-driven novels into a little book. I keep it just like $2.99, or it's even free on Wattpad, Mm -hmm. and it's just called How to Write Your Novel uh, by C.J. Lyons, very simple. Um, but I have taken like all the, the courses that I taught, like all the master classes and, and all those lessons and exercises and everything, and I put them in there. So that way, people that are interested in how I do things craft wise, they have a resource. People that are interested in the publishing resources, I find that a blog works better for that because I can keep it updated more timely. Okay. And I can also share it. You know, so uh, this year we've had a lot of guest blogs that have been really fascinating. So um, I keep that is more on the publication side. And your primary website for your books is cjlyons.net. Is that the best way for, for people to get, to get in touch with you and follow your work, to go to the website, sign up for the email list? Uh, if they want to follow my fiction, then yes, go to cjlyons.net, and there's a sign up for the email list on every page of the website. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> uh, 
if they're just interested in hearing more, because like I try, I, I actually, I shy away from trying to sell to fellow writers because they know what books they want to read, and and you know I'm, they're like any other reader. I, I don't want to force myself on them. Uh, so if you just want to follow more publishing information, then it's no rules, just write w r i t e dot com. CJ, your new book is is watched. It's coming out on November fourth. You've got a big release for in San Diego, which is so cool. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great fun. Thanks for listening to The Author Biz Podcast at www.theauthorbiz.com. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mentioned, just check out the website. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. Please join us again next week for another informative episode.